Let us pray. Gracious Father, for this day, thank you. Um, thank you for Mark's good word, for your word to us, um, for your word given through your servant Martin Luther and all the reformers. Come now, Lord, I pray you would speak to us and let your word be a living and active word. Let it be its own interpreter. Let it uh, let your cross do itself to us so that we may hear your word coming to us in two forms uh, and, and then be your creature at your hand. Lord, place us properly uh, as the subject of your work. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So in my prayer there, I never really intend all that, but that's what's bouncing around in my brain uh, because that's what bounced around in Luther's brain. So um, we're in the middle of a two-week series here um, in the footsteps of the Reformation, uh, ostensibly t- Probably this is the honest truth. I won't speak for Mark, but so that I can get we can get our ducks in a row before this trip that some of us are taking in July to uh, to Luther, as Mark mentioned last week. Um, uh, a group of us are going to Germany uh, in July. Uh, this is 2016. We're trying to beat the crowds uh, because 2017 will mark the 500th anniversary when Luther nailed the theses, probably. To the uh, to the door uh, on the on the Schloss Castle in the Castle Church, uh, the Schloss Kirche in Wittenberg, um, and so it's a lot going on. You're going to hear a lot about Martin Luther and the Reformation if you're in that circle. Um, we'll make some deals of it, I'm sure. Uh, if you listen to podcast or read Christianity Today or anything mm-hmm. like that, you're going to see a lot of different sort of things about the Reformation and Martin Luther in particular um, in the coming. Uh, 18 months. So we're getting on the wagon. Um, we're going a little bit early, and uh, and this class is just to sort of uh, orient ourselves to that trip broadly, and more specifically um, to Scripture. <coughs> Why do I say that? Uh, if picking up where Mark left off, and Mark, just jump in. My hope is to, and it's not going to happen, but my hope is to take about 20 minutes. There's no way that's going to happen. Um, Take about 20 minutes and then leave lots of time to interact with a little bit of art that we're going to see uh, because the Reformation was not a kind of classic, at least the Lutheran Reformation was not. They didn't sort of abandon all images. Uh, in fact, very intentionally with the rise of the printing press, they uh, uh, saw this as a real opportunity. They, they tweeted, so to speak. They took the medium of the day and said, we can use this to our ends. And so they uh, off they went. And so a lot of art emerged. Um, some of it vulgar, some of it very profound, um, or at least that's an interpretation. Um, where did Mark leave us last week? Coming out of scholasticism, um, I think it's helpful sometimes to think about uh, what was going on um, uh, around the, the, this time of Martin Luther. Uh, he, he didn't appear in a vacuum, just like Mark so helpfully told us. It was the age of the explorers. Columbus had just sailed in 1492 and found um, the Americas. Uh, Let's see, Copernicus was active. Galileo was soon about to come. You had, uh, uh, so you had interest going, now I got to know my geography, west, trying to to, uh, to explore the new lands. But from the east, the rise of Islam was really pressing in. It was a couple hundred miles away. So there was a lot of distractions if you were Charles V who was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. Uh, And that providentially uh, uh, let the Reformation happen because he was distracted. You know, you had the fronts, you had opportunities on both fronts, you had things going on, which left Luther and some others to do what he wanted to do. 
um, and not get killed for it. Uh, so all that was happening, which is important to remember. And then to pick up where Mark was, either in the most, um, as somebody once said, I can't remember who it was, either the most foolish promotion in the history of the world or one of the most profound providential promotions, Martin Luther, this anxiety-ridden monk, was sent by his superior as a monk um, to uh, Johann von Stoppitz to, uh, to study the Bible. It's almost Seinfeldian, isn't it? What do you do with somebody that you don't know what else to do with? You promote him. <laughs> and there he was. He was Luther, you know, the monk's monk. And he was, you know, there's a great scene in that movie, Luther. We talked about that after class last week, where Luther was scrubbing the floor three times as hard as everybody else. And he made everybody else look bad. That's almost the caricature that's proper. What do you do with somebody that's making everybody else look bad? You promote them. You get rid of them. And how did he promote them? He promoted them to go be a doctor of theology. What did that mean? It meant go read the Bible. That's hard for us to understand, but it wasn't common back then. Just because Luther and the other monks were monks, that didn't mean they read the Bible. Um, the Bible was still the purview of a very small and select few. That was all about to change, and it was all about to change primarily because of Luther. There were a few others that were before that, but we won't go there. Um, just to say that Luther went and had access to the Bible, and that was really important. Some phrases that will come up. Um, if we're thinking roughly in this period right now, which would be sort of when he goes to Wittenberg in 1513, he lectures. He begins lecturing. Um, he lectures on the Psalms first, and then he lectures on Romans, and then he lectures um, on Galatians, and he lectures on Hebrews. And that takes us up to 1518, which is about the time when everything was going down. He nailed the theses in 1517, and he started to to, uh, to attract the attention of the Pope and some others in 1518 up to the point where he was excommunicated in 1520. So all this is about the Bible. And what happened? Um, Luther started, as he read the Bible, to realize that uh, the subject of theology, this is a phrase that he came out with early on, the subject of theology is the sinning human and the justifying God. Why is that important? Luther... It's often said, but it's worth noting again and again and again and again. He didn't sort of come about this abstractly. He wasn't sort of a thinker in the sense that he just sort of sat around and said, I wonder how all these parts fit together. And let me sort of create this system. Let me create this big picture. Let me create this, uh, this flow chart that describes you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, man, Jesus Christ and his cross, the church. He didn't, he didn't write that. He, uh, he started reading the Bible, and the Bible became um, uh, the means through which the Lord did himself to him. And that's Luther's language. He's very earthy. He'll describe the Bible in a very personal way, where he personifies the Word, because he was like to run Hebrews, remember? And it says, and the Word of God is living and active. And Luther took that to be a real word. Okay, if the Bible is alive, that means it's coming at me in the same way that the devil would be coming at me. Um, if God is alive, he's the one who's pursuing me. But I may not even know if it's him yet. Um, well, anyway, he, he felt this assault in a real, intangible way. And he said all of theology is the interpretation of Scripture. So he boils it right down. Why do we say all that? Because it matters. That's why we hold the Bible in such regard. 
because he was like Mark, you know, at Beeson, is an Old Testament theologian. That's what we would call Luther today. He's a professor of the Old Testament. He spent most of his time lecturing on the Old Testament, not on the New. He never taught a systematics class. He didn't sort of say, now that I've got this theology figured out, y'all come to me and I'm going to teach you theology. He didn't do that. He said, come, I'm going to, I'm going to do Galatians again. I'm going to do Romans again. I'm going to do the Psalms again. I'm going to lecture nine years on Genesis. And you just come, and I'll capture all the questions that's necessary because the subject of theology is the sinning human and the justifying God. And so he pulls all this together, and he wants to make it... Um, real. Well, he didn't want to. It was real to him. It's just what happened. So that's kind of an introduction, really. Any comments on that? Luther was about the Bible. Luther, the theologian, is Luther the one who is interpreting Scripture. For Luther, theology is Scripture. Theology is not abstracted and apart from it. And I want to make sure we knew that, because we're going to look at some pieces of art up there, and we're going to see how the art is in service of theology as the interpretation of scripture. Hey, John. Any questions or comments so far? Mark, you want to jump in? Jump in at any point. Um, so a couple of dates just to kind of put us into a perspective, like I said, within the age of the ex explorers and all that. Um, uh, as I mentioned, we're sort of in 15, early 16th century, so 1500s. Um, Luther is sent to Wittenberg. I think the university was founded in like 1504 five or six, and so he's fresh on. Less than 10 years old, Luther's going. Frederick Bavise, uh, uh says, you know, here's somebody that I can sort of build my university around. He's a charismatic sort of hothead, but, you know, I like that because people are going to come, and sure enough, enrollment went way, way up, um, uh, and he starts doing what he's doing. 1517, just a quick outline of dates here in the next these eight years. 1517, something called the Disputation Against Scholastic Theology. That's what Mark sort of helpfully talked about. That was two months before, about six weeks before the 95 Theses. The 95 Theses are what get the attention. But really, September is probably, you would probably say that's the first sort of Reformation document. Um, it's a big statement to say, but, but there's a lot more to this one. And you can read it, I and mean, it's in this book, and it's in a few others. There's a, there's a lot more substance, especially that we would call sort of biblical Christianity, Reformation Christianity, in this disputation against scholastic theology in 1517, in the 95 Theses, and then in 1518, the Heidelberg Disputation. We're going to Heidelberg. We're going to see this, the place. That was in April um, some of us who know the little book, which we, I, somebody told me, I don't know if this is true, book published by Eerdmans, by Gerhard Faraday, called um, On Being a Theologian of the Cross. <coughs> somebody said, you know, I think, it was Mark Mattis, um, said, I think the Advent is the only reason that book is still in print. <laughs> he said, what is it about you guys that you love that book so much? Because Mattis, who's coming here this July, in fact, um, studied under Gerhard Ferdy, the guy who wrote the book and died about five years ago. Uh, he thought it was curious that we, the Advent, have globbed onto that book in such an important way. Um, I do. I, I recommend it completely um, and unreservedly. It's a fantastic little volume. It's short, but it's dense, but it's doable. Um, anybody can read it. Um, it's very, very, very good. So we've kept it in print, um, so keep it going. You know, buy it if you don't have it. Um, all that happened in 1518, the Heidelberg Disputation. Uh, he started to get into debates with Kajetan, um, or Kajetan, 
uh, a top tier scholar. Um, Luther would later say, because then they started, remember that they were divided, the Pope was on the east and the west with the Turks and, and the Americas. And so they started sending lower tier scholars to, uh, to debating, uh, like at the Diet of Worms and some others. And Luther later said he was probably drunk. Um, because that was supposed to be funny, but it's probably true. Uh, he said, um, you know, if they would have sent Kajetan back to me, it all might have been different. Um, but they sent that pig, Ek, um, because he just, you know, these people, they don't know what they're doing. It kind of made him mad um, that they were sending what he thought was lower flight scholars against him. And he did. He kind of ate them up and threw them out. So that happened in 1518. Um, he debated Ek, who I just mentioned, in 1519. The three treatises, which are famous in 1520 on the freedom of a Christian and the Babylonian captivity of the church. That's where he outlined the sacraments and started to deconstruct the mass. I know I'm just throwing all this stuff out totally fast. Um, and the address to the German nobility, where the priesthood of all believers came out. So a very important year, 1520, massive, massive output. Meanwhile, um, the tension builds and grows, and he gets a, a papal bull, um, which is like a censure, uh, Exerve Domine, arise, O Lord, uh, uh, which where Luther was excommunicated and he was ordered to Worms, where we're not going because um, it's too far over to the east, uh, and that's where the famous "Here I stand, um, my my conscience is captive to the will of God, and I can do no other. God help me, Amen." Great scene in the movie um, with Joseph Fiennes. It's really, I think, it's well done in that one. So all that happened in 1521. Um, then he gets kidnapped to the Wartburg, which is where we are going to go. Uh, that's where he translates the New Testament. Meanwhile, back on the farm in Wittenberg, I think this is a really interesting part of the history that doesn't get written about very much. What's going on in Wittenberg? Because Luther's been sort of seeding uh, the, uh, the, the unrest, as it were. Things have started, and now he can't, he's not there to lead the charge anymore. The cat's away and the mice start playing. Philip Melanchthon, if you're into this, he wrote his first Loci Communes. Um, very important, very important in the history of, of Reformation. Um, when we go to Wittenberg, we're talking a lot about Luther. They're just as proud of Melanchthon, who, were called, who was called the teacher of Germany. And so we'll see a lot. There's Melanchthon House, and there's, you'll see the big statue of, of Luther, but right next to it is the statue of Melanchthon. Um, you'll see Luther's grave. Right next to it is the, the grave of Philip Melanchthon. Um, so the two of them are really seen sort of in tandem, uh, and the first edition of Loci Communes comes out. Where does this get tied into us as Anglicans? Um, Philip Melanchthon had a huge influence on Thomas Cramner. Um, Philip Melanchthon was a brilliant humanist scholar. Um, think uh, Renaissance. Do those words mean anything to y'all? Am I going too fast? Um, uh, uh, yeah, friend. Uh, commonplaces, thank you. So loci, a place, um, and common, um, commune. So a commonplaces, um, like what Ashley Null so helpfully tells us, um, and I taught a class on this in, um, in December, um, what's an example of a commonplace? Uh, a scriptural commonplace would be what we call the comfortable words. Um, here, after we do the confession, and we're all feeling broken properly as the sinning human in view of the justifying God, now we need a word from the Lord. And so uh, Cramner collected into a common place four words of the gospel to comfort us, to strengthen us, and to pull us together uh, and to reconstitute us. 
to allow the word to do itself to us and to breathe life into us. So come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is a trustworthy intro. You know, you know the comfortable words. Um, that's an example of a commonplace. Melanchthon had a huge influence on Cramner. Cramner wanted Melanchthon to come to England. I think this is really interesting. Kept inviting him, just like I do some people all types. Like, come to the Advent. We'd love to have you. Come to the Advent. And you know why Melanchthon never came? He hated water. He also believed in astrology. You know, not astronomy, but astrology, like Aries and Pisces and all that sort of stuff. And he had an early reading of astrology that said, you're going to die uh, in, a, in a shipwreck. And so it scared him his whole life. Philip Melanchthon. And so he never traveled across the, uh, across the waters. He hardly traveled at all. And so he never came to England. But in the second edition, in 1535, uh, he dedicated it to Henry VIII, actually. Um, just as Henry VIII was just getting rid of Catherine of Aragon and trying to find some way to, to, to bridge these two churches, Melanchthon was really into what we call now ecumenism. He wanted that to be, to be a mark. Um, didn't work, but kind of interesting. So there's a lot, even now, of, uh, of overlap between England and Germany at this point. So all that's going on at 1521. Um, uh, like Mark said, with the enthusiasts, they're starting to rise up in his sermon. Um, they're starting to rise up in 1521. And so when Luther gets out of exile, forced exile, after 10 months at the Wartburg, he goes back and he has to bring order. Um, and then a bunch of nuns get shipped over in herring barrels, and he ends up marrying one of them in 1525, same year he wrote on a bondage with a will. And one of the blights, the first big blight on Luther's biography, he had several, uh, was the Peasants' Revolt, um, where from his pen, where in haste he wrote something and he wanted to get it back. It was, it was literally now for us, the email is like, oh, I shouldn't have sent that. Can I get that back? And he couldn't get it back. And uh, it was a word to the to the German princes to, you, you have permission to crush him. And so the princes took that, and I forget how many peasants were killed, but we'll learn about all that when we're over there. Um, so a lot was going on in this short amount of time. So that was my 10-minute overview of just some, some basic dates. Questions? Tell me to slow down and say, I didn't understand a word of that. Um, I just wanted to fire hydrant that, and then let Mark come up here. Yeah. Yep, uh, you caught that, didn't you? Um, well, right when uh, all this was happening, as Luther, as I said, in 1520, wrote those theses, those, those treatises, and starts to deconstruct a lot of the, the, what, what they would call the papism, the papal tradition of the mass and of the celibacy of priests and all that, uh, all that started to be called into question. It said, how did this happen? Because they wanted to go ad fontes. We'll look at a piece here. That was a mark of, that was probably the cry of, of humanism. Well, let's go back to the source. I don't believe it because you told me, because you're just like me, a sinner. Let me read the source. Let me go back to the scriptures. That was what it was for the Christians, the Christian humanists, ad fontes. So why should I not marry just because I'm a minister, just because I'm a priest, just because you tell me so? What does the scripture say? And so all that started to fall out. And so priests started to marry. Uh, Luther was one of the last ones to do it. And I think it was nine nuns were shipped to Wittenberg because all this had to be, Wittenberg was a, a province that was protected. Um, and so people could be, could go there. 
sort of in a, a place of protection. And so they arrived in, in, in herring barrels, smelly, um, not so good. Uh, and when they opened them up, Luther helped find, he played matchmaker among many other things. It's a very interesting life. Um, and, uh, and one of them couldn't get matched off. And uh, that's the one he ended up marrying. So not for love, but he later came to, to really appreciate Katie von Bora, um, Catherine von Bora. Uh, she was the last out of the barrel, so to speak. Um, I wonder how long it took for the, the herring smell to get out of her skin. So, I mean, that stuff stays with you. So, um, Anything else? I think I'm going to go flip through some art just to move us along. So. Uh, I missed last year that Mount Knowledge was Reformation. I think the Reformation, I think about things that took place in Scotland, and I think Henry Knox made a sermon. Sure. Yep. Big question. Good question. One that I'm not going to approach completely. Um, so Luther was first generation reformer. Um, he was about 25 years, 26 years older than Calvin, for instance. Um, and I say all that just because Luther was, he wasn't the very first. You had John Wycliffe in England and Jan Hus and Czechos, now Czechos, then Czechoslovakia. Um, a few others were saying these same things. But Luther, again, because on the two fronts, sort of by providence, by accident, by pure luck, whatever you want to call it, was able to sort of carry it forward in a way that they weren't. And once, for, for all sorts of reasons, once the cat was out of the bag, it couldn't get it back in. So then it bled over from, obviously, Germany into Geneva, over to England, and then north into Scotland. And it started to have, and then also into the Scandinavian countries. Uh, once it was out, it took a lot of different forms. Um, as I mentioned earlier, because we're about to look at some art um, in the German form, um, it, they weren't so iconoclastic. They kept a lot more of the Roman influence than the Genevan form. That's very, very, very broad. You can come in here and correct me wherever you want, um, which would be helpful. Uh, as it moved north into Scotland, because of some interesting reasons, in England it started to, although it Early English Reformation probably tended more towards Luther, that's Carl Truman. Um, later, for lots of reasons, tended more towards Calvin. And especially as it started to go northward, uh, it was very Calvinistic and very iconoclastic, which just means pull down the icons. Anything which symbolizes should be taken away uh, at the extreme. Anything which is not even mentioned specifically in the Bible should not be in a church. So no organs, because there were no organs in the Bible. Um, uh, and that happened up there in Scotland with Knox and some others. What was called? Anyway, that's that's such a poor response to that. But but the Reformation, once it got out, it was too big. Not even not even a Luther, sort of a Titanic figure, could um, could begin to control it. And so it took a lot of permutations. That's right. That's right. Got pulled apart. Um, uh, yeah, massive amount of art was destroyed. Um, just wholesale, which, of course, breaks a lot of hearts. But um, there's some interesting books about that. Pulling, it was stripping of the altars by Eamon Duffy, for instance, which is be a really interesting book for that. It's kind of pro-Catholic, but pretty interesting book. Should we look at some art just to give people a visual hint of, uh, of what's going on? Um, and then Mark, pop in. Um, anything you want to say first? I was um, say it is it's fascinating to me that even in the Reformed and Lutheran traditions on this particular issue you raised. 
you know, how, how the Ten Commandments are ordered reflect a very different sensibility about the role of lifetime abortion. Um, the Lutheran tradition sees the first, and you might think of the second commandment, don't make graven images, as really an elaboration of the first commandment, they order it differently, whereas in sort of Calvinist reform tradition, they see those as two different commandments, and therefore the kind of prohibition against icons is a much broader view than it is within the Lutheran view. That even goes back to a very complicated interpretation of how one orders the, the ten words. So that, It's a good question. It's a big one. Um, any other comments before we look at a couple of pieces? So Stadt just means city in German, so you're going to see all this. So Kirche is a church, so the city church. Um, there are two churches in Wittenberg, the Schlosskirche, which means castle. So the castle church, the castle has fallen into some disrepair. That was Frederick the Weiser's house, uh, and he had a church attached to it. That's the famous one because that's where the... It's got this beautiful spire that says Ein Feisterberg, which is a, a mighty fortress, uh, Luther's hymn, and that's where um, Luther nailed the theses to the door, and that's where he's buried. But this is where he spent his time. This is where he preached most often. This is where he went to church every Sunday. Um, this is where a good friend of his, um, John Johann Bugenhagen, they were godparents to each other's children, was the pastor. Can you imagine being Martin Luther's pastor? He wasn't the pastor of the church. But he was there every Sunday along with the, uh, this tight little community. Lucas Cranach, we're about to look at some of his art. Um, he's, uh, he was there. He became the mayor. Um, his son took over the practice of uh, the art studio afterwards, and it became this, this factory, basically, for Reformation propaganda. Uh, uh, Lucas Cranach, Johann Bugenhagen, Philip Melanchthon, and, um, and Martin Luther. That sort of formed the core of the Wittenbergers, as they were called. And this is one piece that's in the Stadtkirche, St. Mary's Church, St. Mary the Virgin, um, that, uh, that Cranach the Younger, I think, did. Um, yep, so Cranach the Older uh, died in 1560, I think it was, 1554. Uh, and then Cranach the Younger continued. And this is, as you can see, here's the path, which is kind of the dividing line of the, uh, of the painting. And these are the reformers, and over here are the, uh, uh, the Roman Catholics, the papists, as they would call them. And all this was an, uh, uh, painted on commission to a man named Paul Aber. And so you can see this is Aber and his family. So all the, if you were alive, you would go there and you would say, like, oh, there's Paul. You know, and there's you know, Luther, who's dead, but there's, you know... Uh, Flacius Illyricus, who's still alive, and he's a real hothead. And you'd be pointing out, and you can see all these people. You would know them. And that was a big part of what they were doing. They didn't go iconoclastic. They took art and used it very much for its own ends, very didactic. And so you can see Luther, a couple of details, Luther and the other reformers caring very carefully for the garden. The vineyard of our Lord is what this is called. And so he hears Luther, who's been dead now for 20 years, raking this is Philip Melanchthon um, pouring out the water. I mentioned ad fontes, back to the fount, to the font. And so they're tending the well and going in and getting the, uh, the pure water from the well and, and using it very carefully and intentionally and properly. Um, it's going to be contrasted. I'll look over there in a minute what the, uh, what the Roman Catholic Church uh, was doing. And they were souring it and putting rocks in and not doing anything that they were supposed to be doing. And so it's just absolute sort of propaganda, but if you kind of buy into it, you're actually um, kind of there. Here's what they're doing, just kind of being careless and 
moving around. You can see the detail. And so we'll be there. You can go right up to it. Um, this is one of the lesser known pieces. Uh, but you can go right up to the vineyard of the Lord and look and get a sense of what's going on. Um, and then the one I want to spend a little bit of time with, um, Lucas Cranach, um, as I mentioned, this was very early. Um, when it was just, when the Reformation was, was sort of moving into its stability, um, Luther said, okay, I'm probably going to live, but he started to have all these, these, these health problems. He approached Lucas Cranach, who was a great portrait artist and kind of known around Europe, uh, who was living in Wittenberg, and Luther just basically said, hey, I want you to work with me. And Cranach said, okay. It was almost just that simple. And so let's start producing some art. And so this became a very famous piece, which was reproduced at least five times. And then next week, if we have time, we might look at the Weimar altar piece, where I hope we'll spend a significant amount of time when we're there in July. Uh, the idea is to go see Buchenwald, one of the concentration camps from World War II in the morning, and then to go see the Weimar altar piece, that famous piece where it's a really large piece, large painting. It'd be the size of this whole wall, um, bigger than that. Uh, with a, a large crucifixion in the blood coming straight out of Christ's side, landing squarely on the top of Lucas Cranach's head. And you can even see the blood like spurting off. And so to look at the, uh, the hidden God on the cross, the theology of the cross to help us make sense of what we look at in Buchenwald. This was sort of the beginnings of the working out of what eventually inspired the Weimar altarpiece. And this was repeated several times uh, because, again, it was just this propaganda factory. It's kind of weird to think of it in this way, but this is what they were doing. They were trying to get a movement out and, uh, and, and, and get people to think in a certain way. And so this is called uh, Law and Gospel, Gazette zum Gnade, Law and Grace, Gazette zum Gnade. Uh, and you can see on the left-hand side um, all that represents the law, and on the right-hand side all that represents grace. I know some of y'all can't see this very closely, but just a few pieces. This is a, uh, all these are scriptural pieces, so they're, they're telling you what they want you to know. Um, very didactic. Some of those were added, added later. Christ who sits in judgment, which was the prevailing uh, image. It was in the front of every church when you walked in, the medieval Catholic church, medieval church, there was no Catholic at that point, um, just to come in and, and remember when you come in, you are being watched. Um, scholasticism. Do what is in you. Facare quad est. Do what is in you because if God can play I spy and see something in you that's worth uh, seeing, if you're doing your very, very best, God, like a coach judging his players, might say, all right, well, there's something in Cracky which might be enough to sort of then give him a little bit of extra help. Um, one was called congruent merit. Mark mentioned that last time. So if, if uh, I do what's my very, very, very best, then maybe God will see me. And so it's in congruence with what I've done. He'll meet me with some merit. That was this form of grace. And then he'll condign or allow a certain other grace to come. And so like, okay, well, here's some extra work in the weight room. Here's some extra work. Um, we'll promote you to executive vice president. And now you can have uh, a little bit more responsibility and see how it goes. It's natural religion. It works perfectly in athletics, it works great in business, and it's awful. It's awful in Christianity. And that's what Luther was reforming all the way back in 1517 in the disputation against scholastic theology, where he says, Scotus and Beale 
are dead wrong. Um, and this is how God works. Somehow, through the blood coming through the Holy Spirit, you see the little dove right there? That the word, that Christ died for you. Uh, when that word comes through the Holy Spirit and it lands on the ear, it lands in the heart of Adam, who over here is running into the flames of hell, fleeing death and the devil, under the judgment of God, because there is no condign or congruent merit that's worth seeing, wholly different way of thinking about things, that from Christ's death, the cross alone is our theology. That's the summary word of his 1518 uh, Heidelberg Disputation. Uh, that's where the phrase theology of the cross even came out. The cross alone is our theology. What does that mean? The blood of Christ through the Holy Spirit um, creates faith. Victor. This is Mary, the Annunciation. That's the from Isaiah 7. Um, uh, Unto you shall be born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Um, uh, and so here you can see this in Weimar too. This is Numbers 21. Reformers love this. Uh, where the bronze snake, what was Israel doing, you know, the third time, I think, when they're, like, tired of, you know, of, uh, of walking. And they're like, how come you let us out? At least when Egypt we had food and we had a house. And it's like, you know, they forgot about bricks with no straw and they were slaves. And like, we don't have anything to eat and the water's lousy and the beds are hard. And, and God said, I got enough. And he sent snakes around the camp and they started to bite Israel. And people started to die. And they came, Moses, help us, help us. And Moses pleaded for him again. Uh, and God said, take a bronze image of the thing which is killing you, the snake. Uh, and then when you look up, you will live. And so that's in Numbers 21, the bronze snake, which John, in John 3, says, just as Moses was lifted up, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. And the reformers were all over that. Um, when I say the reformers were all over that, Luther and Cranach were together, and they tied those together. This is how it happened. They said, let's put these together. Let's remember all of Scripture is about Christ, Luther would say. The subject of theology is the sinning human and the justifying God. So Luther, being an Old Testament theologian, finds Christ on every page, as it were, and finds a way to have the Christocentric reading of Scripture. So it's complex and didactic and convoluted. Adam, Eve, Christ in judgment, death, hell, uh, Moses talking to some of the nobility, the, the tree that's dying, the tree of life, Mary, the cross, the Holy Spirit, uh, the resurrected Christ defeating, that would be death and the devil, same ones over here, the Lamb of God, the Agnus Dei, holding the, all this gets repeated in a lot of different art around the uh, uh, period of the Reformation. So, yeah, Mark. Do you have any sense why the, um, the bronze serpent scene is on the left side of the tree? Um, very interesting, Mark. Um, that's on the law side. Um, another part says this was reproduced. It was on the gospel side. Um, it went both ways, in fact. You picked up on a, not surprisingly, on um, <laughs> something which uh, which goes back and forth even as it's reproduced in different places. This is in... Now it's pressing my memory. One's in, I can't remember the other two are, Gerda and Nogatha in some other place. In some places on the gospel side, some places on the law side. Um, Joe, I'm interested why Mary would be so elevated on, on the Reformation. 
yeah, Luther wasn't wholly against Mary. Remember, part of the he wasn't as iconoclastic as um, as later reformers. He had a lot of special place for Mary. If you want to really rail against Mary, you can find some things in Luther. I mean, you do not believe in like the the uh, uh, the assumption of Mary that Mary never died or that sort of thing. But but Luther stayed. Stayed pretty close to a lot of the elevation of Mary. His his writings on the Magnificat are beautiful, and you'll find you'll find a lot of devotional um, strength if you have some sort of what we now call Catholic sensibility. Um, he didn't he didn't throw Mary out completely. Um, a lot of the first century first generation reformers did not. Um, Calvin and then as he went over to England up in the northern England where it was a lot of Marian devotion. You know that's where it really started to go in reaction. So. Good question. Yep. Is it a stretch? Because, you know, you see the, the uh, Adam and Eve as a tree and Mary in the same spot that she was really, that's what was said in Genesis 3, that you know, Mary would, um, would be born of a woman. Right, right. That's sort of the answer to that tree. Yeah, well, could be. That's right. So, um Picked up right there in, in Galatians 5, you know, born of, born of a woman, born of the, under the law. Um, Galatians 4, I guess that is. So this is kind of a flavor of uh, 16th century art, which we'll look at um, several different pieces. One of the more complex ones in terms of it's just busy, which some people really like. Um, its artistic value is debatable, um, but within its period, it was... Um, fairly unique, um, and so we'll see a lot more of it. Last question or thought before we head on? I just totally hosed y'all. Yeah. Oh, on the left, Catholic that you're saying is just the original church versus the right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. Um, wait, say that again. There was the risen Christ and the Savior of the world. The difference, you know, you've got, you've got the risen Christ on the reform side, but was there the belief that, like you said, versus the judgment and the condemnation, wasn't the original church viewed Jesus, the risen Savior? Yep. So, let's see if I can answer this quickly and then we'll move. Um, like, early Christianity, yes. And that was part of the Reformation, remember, it's got the word reform in there, to form again. Um, and that's one way, and I think properly and charitably, um, it didn't come across very charitable. It was, let's, let's get back to where we were, ad fontes. Uh, all of the solas, which we might have heard about, sola gratia, sola scriptura, solo deo gloria, the five Reformation solas, solus Christus, all of them are in response to other things that had risen up. And so the risen Christ and his salvation was always conjoined to our work, our effort, what was in us, facare quad in yes. That was the buzzword. You would have known that uh, if you were coming out of the church in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries. Um, so the, God's salvation was only meted out through a priest usually through the sacrament of the Mass, after proper contrition. And so you had to make sure that you prayed just right, got rid of your sins by confessing to the right person, 
and then eat the wafer. Eat, no, have it placed in your mouth. Uh, maybe. Maybe they ate it for you. And then don't do anything wrong after that. Otherwise, you're back to hell. Was that everywhere? It probably wasn't everywhere. Was that a lot of places? It was a lot of places. And so it wasn't, the, part of that answer is yes, but, but no, not really. Um, the risen Christ as we know him as freely available to someone who hears the gospel. That was what was reformed. That word was placed in front of people again in a new, fresh, and vital way. And that's why it matters. Because again, natural religion, just like it works for athletics and it works in business, if we got in here and we said, let's make up a new religion, it's probably what it would look like. Congruent and condign merit. In other words, if, uh, if you got what it takes and then we sort of, you know, fan it up a little bit, you're going to be okay. You got, a, you got a future here, son. You're going to play on Friday. It might take two years, but that's okay. You're only a sophomore. You're going to be okay. That was it. That's scholasticism. So. Other than Common? Um, thank you, John. Uh, and then I, I need to wrap up, let people go. Yes. And so it's not law against gospel, because this is what this was called. Um, Luther is not an antinomian. He's not saying so everything on the left is bad. Um, it says law, then gospel. Law always serves gospel. Gospel never serves law. Christ is the end of the law. Um, and so what's in common? The state of each of us without Christ is the left, and the left serves the right. Uh, law tells us who we are, uh, and then the gospel tells us what God has done for us. As simple as that sounds, again, that was the word that reformed the church. And as James would say, uh, we need to hear that every day, because when we, we look at this, we're like, well, of course. But then we forget about it. We're like a man that looks in the mirror and we walk away. We're like, now what did I look like? Is my hair okay? And all that stuff. And we forget this. And we have to look at it every day. So the first of the 95 theses, when Christ calls a man to say, when Christ says repent, he's talking about a lifetime of repentance. We come back to this every single day. Law tells us who we are. And then the gospel tells us what God has done. And the gospel is always the trumping word. So with that, let me pray. Lord, come, take this uh, meager offering and water it um, to your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.